Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Well, we are in our series. Uh, today we're continuing our series, Following His Footsteps. It's Palm Sunday today, as Pastor Albert was just telling us. Palm Sunday officially kicks off what's known as Passion Week. This whole week from Palm Sunday to Easter, known as Passion Week. That word passion is an interesting thing. Did you know the passion, it comes from this Latin word, passio, and the word means suffering. It comes from the word meaning suffering. And originally in the English language, the word passion, that's what the word passion meant. It was suffering before it kind of took on its, its more woo risque connotations. Um, or, you know, whatever that is. I don't know what, how it got from suffering to, to whatever that is. Um, but... It's Passion Week, and did you know more scripture is devoted to these seven days in the life of Jesus than any other seven-day period in all of the Bible? More scripture is devoted to this. The gospel writers, it's like they, they put the brakes on and just really zero in on these seven days in the life of Jesus. Jesus begins this week on a Sunday, the triumphal entry, which we're going to talk about today, his entry into Jerusalem, and he ends the week being crucified on a cross dying and being buried in a cave. Spoiler alert, don't worry, there's a resurrection coming on Sunday. Amen? Amen. I don't want to give anything away. Um, that's the worst kept secret, you know, since Avengers Endgame, everybody's coming back. You know, we hear. Uh, so, but yes, there is a resurrection coming. We're also beginning uh, this week our final week of fasting. We had a call to fast uh, here at Generations. It's also the last week of the season of Lent all over the world going on, uh, which brings me to an important thing. This Friday is Good Friday, and often, you know, in our circles, we kind of skip right past Good Friday. We like to talk about Palm Sunday, you know, palm branches. We have fun with that. We'd like to talk about Easter. In between, there is a crucifixion. There is a death of our Savior, right? And it's important that we not skip right past that because that is actually where our sins got forgiven, right? And the whole universe changed on a Friday afternoon. And so this Friday is Good Friday, and it's the day which, you know, Christians have taken for 2,000 years now uh, to contemplate the crucifixion of our Lord, to just enter into that, that moment. And we're inviting everyone here uh, who would like to, to be able, if they're able to, if you're able to stop by the church during the morning, we're going to extend our normal Friday morning prayer hours, and we're going to extend to 6 a.m. all the way to noon. There's going to be, the church is going to be open. Uh, it's going to be really great. Everybody, you can stop by here and uh, join us for prayer uh, for as little or as long as you want to stop by. If you just have a few minutes before work, just come, come in, duck in, find you a seat, um, and uh, find a spot. Pray your heart out until you need to leave and go to work or whatever you need to do. People will be coming in, in and out all morning long. I'm asking all of our ministry leaders, our pastors, our elders, our prayer warriors to stop by if they if at all can and just join us in this, this time of prayer on Friday morning. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you're depressed. Maybe you're tired. You're burnt out. Uh, you, you are, you're, you're struggling maybe with sickness or something like that. I encourage you, come by. We're going to have prayer partners on hand. They'll just be right here in the front just for anyone who would like to walk up and, and you would like one-on-one -on -one prayer. Uh, so we'll have prayer partners here who can pray for you and ask God to rescue you. Um, if you would like to take communion that morning, we're going to have communion set up. It'll just be kind of a serve-yourself communion like we do at the well. Uh, so you can just come on up. Like I said, come, stay as long as you want. 
want. Uh, come at the end, come at the beginning, whenever you want. It'll be uh, a, a great opportunity. It'll be very peaceful in here, a time to sit. If you just want to come and sit and reflect and meditate on this moment of, of what Jesus did for you, let, and just let him speak to you. Sometimes we just need to come to a quiet place just to hear the Lord speak to us because he's talking, but we live in a noisy world. You know what I mean? Friday might be a great time for you to just come by and say, Lord, I know you're talking. Let me just be quiet for a few minutes here and let you speak to me and listen to what he is saying. It's going to be a peaceful time between, between you and the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we don't plan out every little thing. We kind of, we kind of uh, just set up the, 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 the setting, the atmosphere, and then we wait and see what the Spirit of God wants to do. And I believe he's going to do some powerful things. So good Friday, 6 a.m. to noon. Come pray with us. Amen? Amen. All right, here we go. Today, we are going to work through some of those events on, that happened on Palm Sunday, that very first Palm Sunday, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps. We're talking about following in his footsteps. But before we look at this fascinating entry that Jesus made into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, of all things, I want to give a little historical context to what was going on in the region at the time, what's going on all around Jesus, what was happening at this very moment. So we're going to kind of get in our little time machine for a bit and travel back to first century, the Middle East, right, first century AD, and uh, just to kind of catch us up for, from your history class, it's been a long time probably since you were in class, that this was the time the Roman Empire ruled the world or at least this part of the known world. The Roman Empire was large and in charge. Uh, a few years earlier, before the time of Jesus, Julius Caesar was, was the ruler of Rome, and he had tried to kind of consolidate everything, but Julius Caesar uh, kind of had gotten to this big thing with Elizabeth Taylor, and, and it all kind of fell apart, <laughs> so it didn't really work out. So his son, his adopted son, Octavian, comes along and renames himself Caesar Augustus. He takes on the Caesar name from his dad and uses it as a title. And Caesar Augustus becomes the first true Caesar, the Caesar of, of all of this empire. And Caesar Augustus rules the world from Spain to Syria, all the way across, this was the known, the, or all around the Mediterranean. Um, this was a global superpower with one leader at the top overseeing the whole thing. Caesar, ruler of an empire, inventor of a delicious salad. Caesar, this whole reason belongs to him. Okay, these are the jokes, people. I'm sorry, this is as good as it gets. Um, so now Caesar Augustus believed some interesting things. He believed that he had come from heaven to earth uh, in order to bring about this universal reign of peace and prosperity. And he even said that he was the son of God incarnate. Sounds familiar. Augustus had this uh, propaganda phrase, very popular at the time, that everybody would just say to each other all the time, and it was, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. How are you doing? Caesar is Lord. This is what people would say. It was the propaganda phrase. And we've talked a lot about this over the, over the years, how the, just fascinating how the early church adopts some of these phrases uh, as just a subversive way to say, oh, no, 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 no. Our guy is Lord. Your guy isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Another phrase that was popular in the time of Caesar was, there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved except that of Caesar. Sound familiar? Yeah. This was directly from Roman records that we see this. Um, eventually, though, Caesar Augustus died which put a whole kink in the rule forever plan. And so he was succeeded by Caesar Tiberius. Caesar Tiberius. 
Caesar Augustus was the Caesar alive when Jesus was born. Caesar Tiberius is the one on the throne by the time Jesus gets to his adult ministry. Uh, this is a, it's not. Just kidding. Let's try this one. There we go. So th- these are some coins, actual coins, of Caesar t- in the days of Tiberius. These are called tribute coins, and they would, be ga- they would be, have minted and spread throughout a whole empire. They're not only for, used for commerce, but also as a propaganda, uh, part of the propaganda machine. On there was the phrase, son of the divine, son of the divine uh, God. So he called himself the son of God. Um, Caesar Tiberius comes along and institutes Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, literally. And of course, for Caesar, peace in your land meant he walked into your land, killed a bunch of you, and forced you to serve him, pay tribute. And if you played along nicely, you got to be his servants. And, you know, he would take care of you. If you didn't, he would just kill all all of you. And that was peace in the time of Caesar. Um, And if you didn't agree with that, well... Too, too bad, he was the one with the sword. And the peace of Rome, peace according to the empire means power. Peace equals power. Peace equals the sword. But Tiberius has a problem. As you can, you can imagine from, from that, uh, that, uh, this uh, map here, he's ruling the world, but Tiberius can't be in Spain and France, and Syria, and Israel, and Italy, and all these places, all at the same time. It's a problem that, you know, a lot of us have often faced when you conquered the world. How do you control this world? Uh, Especially these countries that are a long way off. And, you know, there's no uh, internet, there's no telephone, there's not even telegraph. You know, there's nothing like that. There's no planes, uh, trains, or automobiles. All you have are literally horses and ships. And that is the only way. So it takes literally months to get from one end of your empire to the other. So how do you maintain control? Because control is what it's all about. Um, So if you're Caesar Augustus, you either have to find somebody among the people that you have conquered to rule as kind of like a puppet on your behalf, um, uh, or you, you, to, you know, and you make them stay in line, or you take one of your own Roman leaders that you trust, you know, in your circles, and then you plant them over there to rule those people. In the, in the first Caesar, in the, his case, Augustus, uh, in the region of Judea, which we would now call Israel, Augustus appointed a man named Herod to rule that area. Herod was sort of Jewish, that's a strange thing to say, but he was. He was kind of like half Jewish, and so he was from the region, and so he had picked Herod to rule. Herod proved to be a complete psychotic train wreck. Uh, he built a lot of great bu- buildings, but he, he was a psychopath. And so when Tiberius comes to power, Tiberius says we're going to do it a little differently, and he appoints a Roman from Rome to go to Judea and rule the land in his place. And this man was named Pilate. Pilate is the governor of this entire region. This is a, a, a little uh, thing they dug up in 1960, something in the 1960s. And it's an inscription on there. It says, Pilate, uh, governor of Judea. And so there's all this fascinating archaeological evidence uh, for the, the details that the Bible gives us of the, the period. And so Pilate is a Roman living in Israel trying to maintain order among the Jews. 
Now, you do not, if you are a pilot, want these people to raise a ruckus, right? You want to keep them, keep them calm. Uh, because Tiberius, the emperor, is going to say, what's your job again, right? I'm paying you to keep the peace around here, to keep order around here. Now, Pilate lives in a beautiful mansion in a city called Caesarea. Caesarea is a city on the sea, and uh, the ruins are still there. There's all this amazing stuff, and, and it's, this is an amazing place. It's, it's located right on the Mediterranean. Uh, there's beautiful views, has unbelievable climates like California, uh, has pools and temples and gymnasiums. Here's another shot. Uh, that you can see, and it's amazing, being right there, and many of our friends who just came back from Israel can attest, you can see the, the actual tiles on the floor of this palace. I mean, it's just an amazing place that's still there after 2,000 years. Um, but it just, uh, there, were, there were theaters in this city and ships, and it was a trade center for goods, and so there was the finest, you know, silks and spices from around the world. And he named it Caesarea after uh, the Caesar, of course, which is a nice thing to do for your boss. You build a city and name it after your boss, uh, Caesarea. And so Caesarea, this is the place to live in the year nothing, A.D. This is the place to live. So this Roman pilot has come in. He's hired to maintain order, and he lives right here in this beautiful villa uh, right on the sea. But Pilate has a problem. Pilate has a problem. These pesky Jews that he's supposed to keep in line have some holy days, and they have these feasts that they do every year, and it causes no end of hassle for Pilate. Um, in Luke 22, we read, the festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. Now, one problem the Romans had to deal with in Israel at this time was there was a certain Jewish contingent who did not take Roman occupation lying down. For some reason, they just didn't like being occupied. You know, and they, Rome loved it, but uh, the, actually the Jewish people, turned out they hated it. And uh, there was especially this group of, they called themselves freedom fighters, who would rise up every once in a while, and they would assault the Romans. Uh, they, would, they would perform basically these sort of terrorist acts on uh, Roman convoys. There's these uh, historical notes of just these attacks that they would do. Uh, they would deface Roman property when they got the chance. So sometimes they would rise up in revolt against the Romans. And every year, one of the big times that these people were called the zealots, uh, of that time. And every year, one of the big times that they really got riled up was Passover. Passover. Now, why? Why Passover? Well, because Passover for over a thousand years was the celebration of independence from Egypt, right? This was not just a holy day. This was a day where you felt all the feels of patriotism, right? You got really patriotic. It'd be like if America was, you know, occupied by some foreign power, like Man in the High Castle or something like that. The, the time when you would, you would most likely have, you know, the, the insurrections and stuff like that would be on 4th of July, right? Independence Day. So that was Passover. That was Independence Day for, for the Jewish people. So it's not just a holy day. It's a time also when the Romans get very, very nervous every year, especially Pilate. Now, it just so happens that for in our story that we're living through here this week, about a week before we get to the crucifixion of Jesus, Israel is getting ready for Passover. That's the climate. Israel's getting ready for Passover. The day of remembrance, when God sent a man to to deliver his people 
from a foreign oppressor. All of this is in the air. And every year, Jewish people from all over the region would come and make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They would come and they would uh, worship at the Grand Temple Mount. There's, uh, this is just sort of an artist's rendering of Jerusalem at the time. It would just be bulging at the seams with Jewish people from all over the region. All over, they would come. Even those who lived far away would come to Jerusalem during this Passover time. Scholars estimate maybe up to 200,000 Jews would be packed into the city, close to the Holy of Holies there, singing songs, praising God, telling the story of the Exodus, and getting really riled up in the process. That's a whole lot of occupied people in a tiny space. Now, if you're pilot, how excited are you about this festival? Right? Not very. You're thinking, this is bad. What if they all get together and start talking about me? What if, they, what if enough of them get together and they sing enough songs and drink enough wine and start saying, let's get Pilate, we can do it, let's go. So how do you send a message to these people? Don't even think about it. Turn that bullhorn down, just take down all the slogans. Don't even think about messing with me. So once a year, Pilate leaves his palace in Caesarea, his sweet palace, And he performs this grand 70-mile march toward Jerusalem. And this march is a grand spectacle. I'm telling you what. And it is a way of sending the message, Jerusalem belongs to Rome. And you do not mess with Rome. And they go to, to, and they filled the city of Jerusalem with extra Roman soldiers. But the march there was half the point. It really was. You got to picture this. What this, what this would have looked like to them in their day. Uh, he wasn't just catching, I can't, my thing's not working, if you can click the next one. You know, he's not just like jumping on a helicopter to, you know, run to Jerusalem and show up and make an appearance. No, 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 they, they didn't waste this opportunity to show the glory and the power of Rome. And at the front of the march would be this, the, the Roman legion, with the Roman eagle high up on a stand, right? And you would have all the soldiers and the horses marching there. And that that eagle symbolized their power and their speed, that they can go anywhere they want. This was the power of Rome. And behind that would be the Roman soldiers carrying the standards. And on the individual flags of each division of soldiers, they would have their battles and victories listed. They They would list all the places we fought in this place and this place, and we defeated these people. And it would just be like... Like, like a big resume of awesomeness, you know, that they would just be walking around with these, that this division did this and this division. And each cohort of the divisions would be displaying their accomplishments and the victories of the Emperor Caesar for all to see, all of his accomplishments. There'd be a lots of huge banners, there, and the centurions and the legionnaires, and behind them all the ordinary cavalrymen, all telling you all the things that Rome had done to say, you need to know that everybody who has resisted the empire has gotten crushed. Resistance is futile, right? Submit, or we got this thing we're working on called a cross, and it is very painful, right? And that is how Rome, that's how it works with the Roman Empire. Don't even think about resisting. It's all designed about power and strength and authority and domination, And you can just imagine as they're walking through these villages, through the valley, the rhythmic sounds of their marching and the, you know, their pound, the beating of their swords. 
would fill the valley and the image of horses and chariots making their way up to Jerusalem. Everything was designed to evoke fear and terror. That's what it was about, evoke fear and terror as Rome marches through your village. It was kind of the war parade of its day, right? The ancient version of parading your missiles and tanks and fighter planes down the highway so that everyone can see and be impressed. Now, here's a map, go to this next slide, uh, of the region here. As you can see, Pilate and his entourage would be coming from Caesarea, so they're going to be coming east towards Jerusalem, approaching from the west, and as we're going to see, there's another procession that's coming from the other direction here. This same weekend, something else happens. Turn with me over to, to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, I love this stuff so much. There's so much packed into here and it's a struggle to, to, to try to pick what to talk about because we could just spend hours, it's so good. I just love it. Uh, but we're, so we're just kind of skimming the surface. But I want you to see this so bad because it just makes what is happening and what Jesus is doing just get really fleshed out in a whole new way. Okay, in Luke chapter 19, this is soon after Pilate enters from the west, Something else happens. After Jesus said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. We learn earlier in the story, Luke tells us that he's coming from Jericho. And so they say, up to Jerusalem, even though Jericho's up north, Jericho's very, uh, very low. It's like 1,000 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,400 feet above sea level. So everything was up to Jerusalem. That's the way they... They talked about it. And so as Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is a part of a little chain of of mountains just east of the city of Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives here, so it's up high. He gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there, and when you enter it, you'll find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. And they'll say, okay, that clears it up. (laughs) Those who had been sent found it exactly as he said. So Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's coming from Jericho. So while Pilate enters the city from the west gate, Jesus is approaching the city from the eastern gate, right? Eastern gate. And so Jesus arrives in this little town called Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and he says, somebody get me a donkey. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt or the donkey in some translations, and lifted Jesus onto it. And as Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. And as Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because of all the mighty things that they had seen And they said, blessings on the, and what do they call him? King. King. Whoa. Who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Now, is there any word here in verse 38 that maybe you don't want to be shouting real loudly right now? Right? Because Pilate, who's just arrived from the west, he's proven himself to be just totally relaxed and okay with anybody who wants to call themselves king in front of a big throng of people, right? He's very easy going. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, 
scold your disciples, tell them to stop. Dude, keep it down, right? Pilate just got into town. He gets really nervous about this kind of thing. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout out. Now, what is Jesus talking about right here? The stones will shout out. Um, there's this, uh, let's see, let me see if we have it. No, we don't have it. There's a, there's, uh, if you're looking from the Mount of Olives today, looking west toward Jerusalem, and there is a cemetery that was there in its day, and it's still a working cemetery today. And there was a belief among the Jews that at some point, there was this prophecy that at some point, a Savior was going to come, the Messiah was going to come, and he would raise from the dead all the Jews who, were all, who had already died. And, and then the Messiah would lead them all into Jerusalem, and it would become this place of, of peace and joy and a place of prosperity that would extend to the, spread to the ends of the earth. And so if you were a, a good Jew of that day, you knew where you wanted to be buried when you died, right? You told the kids, make sure you bury me on that hill right, the one east of the city where the great resurrection is going to take place. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. If I tell my followers to be quiet, these rocks will cry out. Now, why? Because he's saying, I am the king that you're waiting for. I'm the king you've been waiting for. I'm the one. I'm the one. Now, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 21, because there's this bizarre little detail that keeps coming up about how he rides into the city. But even this is, is just loaded with significance. In Matthew uh, 21, verse 1, this is Matthew's account of the same story. He says, when they approached Jerusalem, Jesus said, go into the village over there, and as soon as you enter, you're going to find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, say the master needs it. He sent them off right away. Now, this is what happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And in here... What follows is a quote from uh, the book of Zechariah. And he says, Say to daughter Zion, that's a reference to Jerusalem, Zion, Look, your king has come to you humble and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. So there's this ancient passage that the Messiah is going to come riding on a donkey. And Jesus again is saying, I am the one that they're talking about. And here's the prophecy over in, in Zechariah that he's referring to. And look at the first part on the left here. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's really cool here is that, it, it's interesting, the rest of the prophecy uh, Matthew doesn't quote, but his Jewish readers, when they were reading his account, this gospel, they would have immediately, who knew their Bible well, they would have immediately continued the prophecy, how it ends in their head. They would have been able to say it to themselves. He continues, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. Now, chariot is a symbol of war. Wherever you see the chariots in the poetry of the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's a symbol of war, the chariots. Ephraim is a poet, poetic reference to the Jews. They called themselves Ephraim sometimes. So literally, he, he's saying, I will take away the weapons from the Jews and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. So there's this king of sorts who is going to come in on a donkey and he's going to take away the weapons of war. And he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
All right, now catch this. Jesus enters from the east. And this king comes riding into town, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, just pretty much the lowliest of animals. And, and on a young donkey at that. It's almost like Jesus is purposefully inviting people to, to witness this sort of humbling, almost ridiculous sight of their future king riding on a tiny animal. You could just picture his, his, le- his feet are almost dragging the ground, right? Riding this little thing. And, it, you know, it, I, I was thinking it would be like a, like a peace march today where, you know, people would be marching into the city on tricycles, you know, instead of tanks, just to make a point. Jesus doesn't announce his kingdom, the arrival of his kingdom, with all the trappings of human power, human war. His followers don't have swords held up high. They have palm branches waving in the air. This isn't the leader of a movement ready to start a war. He's not here to overthrow the political powers that be. He is coming to announce a kingdom where the weapons of war are broken. Are you getting this? This is the prince of peace. This is the prince of peace. I'm excited because I know some of you got to get in this, and I'm sad because some of you won't. But this is the prince of peace. This, that, that's what his followers and, his, and Christians even today, we, we still have a hard time keeping straight in our heads. We're still looking for the Savior with a sword hidden, maybe, you know, yeah, he's riding on a donkey, but like he's got a sword maybe hidden in his robe. He's going to pull it out at the last second. No, no, no. He didn't call us to fight yet another battle against our enemies. He didn't say, I've arrived and I've got new and improved weapons. Now we win. No, Jesus comes to offer hope for a way other than doing battle. Other than doing battle. This is the God who doesn't slay his enemies. He dies for them. He dies for his enemies, and he, tell, he calls us to follow his footsteps. Now, in case some of you are thinking, you're reading way too much into this, I want to read one more important detail of this story before we close. It's a detail that we don't often look at. Back to Luke's account of the story. So the people are praising him. In Luke 19, verse 41, Jesus came to the city and observed it. And he wept over it. That had to be really confusing for his, for his followers, right? The disciples were like, yeah, Jesus, check out the turnout. This is pretty great. Wait, why is the Lord crying? This <laughs> he wept over it. And he said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you. They will encircle you and attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on top of another within you because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. So Jesus comes and announces a very different kind of kingdom. On Palm Sunday, this the Sunday of rejoicing. And even as he arrives, he is deeply and profoundly grieved because he knows these people don't really get it. They don't get it. 
They're still looking for a different kind of king. They're welcoming him. But the king they are looking for is one who will lead them into battle. He's one with a sword hidden in his robe. Who, a king who will become a political king. Someone who will drive out the Romans, drive out the ungodly, the pagans, the liberals, the conservatives, whatever. Pick your enemy. The king that will drive them out. And Jesus is there to die for his enemies. That's a real downer if you're waiting for victory that weekend. He's there to die. He is there to provide salvation, not for the chosen few, but for the earth. Salvation for the earth. What scholars all agree that Jesus is pointing to also in these words, he seems to be foreseeing the events that would happened just a few decades later in the great Jewish revolt of 70 A.D., just a few decades after Jesus, 70 A.D., when tens of thousands of Jews, perhaps hundreds of thousands of Jews, are slaughtered in a misguided attempt to overthrow the Romans. Jerusalem and the temple itself, the great temple, burnt to the ground. The great temple of Yahweh was, was ground to dust by the, the, the Roman general Titus. And Jesus weeps. Everything destroyed. Nothing left but a tiny sliver of a wall of the temple that sits there today where they go to wail, to cry, to pray. And Jesus weeps because he knows these people are cheering for a Messiah, but they are still playing the game by the rules of Rome, and they will be destroyed. They're still trying to play by Rome's rules. And Jesus says, you guys don't realize it. You're living by the sword, and you will die by the sword, but there is a better way. And it's the way he taught us to live. It's a better way. It's the way the apostles we see live in, in the early church. It's the way the early church lives, the record that we see of them, the way that they live. It's the way, you know what, every single generation since then, every generation of, of disciples ha ever since has to decide afresh, are we going to live the way of Jesus? Are we going to choose to do it? We have to choose, including us. We have to make that decision. Because the temptation of Jesus, uh, of, sorry, the temptation of Satan is to trade our worship of the Prince of Peace for worship of the empire, for worship of power, security, status. That temptation is always with us, right? The temptations that we looked at last week, the temptations that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with, those temptations are still with us. Just, just bow and you can have power. You can have a shortcut. And Jesus, we saw last week, said no to that offer when Satan tried to tempt him. But we have to keep saying no, right? We have to keep saying no. Because as we've seen, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, beginning of Genesis, Satan keeps offering the same temptation over and over. Your God cannot be trusted. Trade your worship of him for power, for security. Pilate enters Jerusalem. 
clothed and armed to the teeth, armed with all the trappings of power. Jesus enters from the east riding on a donkey. I love this. I mean, Jesus is so awesome. He's, so, he's staging this brilliant piece of like performance theater, really. That's what we would call it. To announce a totally different kingdom. There's a totally different kingdom. And he's saying to us, my kingdom, children, my kingdom is totally at odds with that kingdom. You got to pick this day whom you will serve. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Pick this day whom you will serve. That empire or my kingdom, because you can't be in bed with both. And the writers of these gospels confront us today, over and over. You can't read the scriptures without seeing that uncomfortable truth that they're confronting us. They're calling to us 2,000 years from the past. They're still calling to us. There's two kings on parade on this day. There's two sets of footprints, two sets of footprints to follow. There's the way of Pilate, and there's the way of Jesus. There's the way of Pilate and the way of Jesus. There's two ways to follow. There's two ways to enter the city. And this decision will be before you the moment you walk out these doors. Right? When all of the wonderful good feelings of being together with the body of Christ evaporate because somebody cuts you off in the parking lot. Right? These, this, this will be with you when you wake up in the morning. There will be two ways on Monday morning to enter into a conversation. There's two ways to treat your employees. There's two ways to treat your boss. There's two ways to deal with conflict in your marriage. <laughs> right? There's two ways to deal with your differences with others, your different set of values than they have your different philosophy for dealing with the world than they have. There's two ways to deal with conflict among friends. There's two ways. There's two ways to run your house. There's two ways to enter the city. There's the way of power and might and intimidation. And there's the way of humility and peace and a broken heart for other people. And Jesus is pushing us to make a choice. Pushing us, pushing us. What's it gonna be? He's asking us, what's it gonna be? War horses or donkeys? What's your way? The way of the empire or the way of the kingdom? Rome or heaven? And never forget that the deceiver is always there to try you, to pull you off track from your path. That's what he tried to do with Jesus last week, we saw He's always trying to pull you off your path, get you confused and distracted, pull you off of your identity, give you a new identity, right? To head down an alternate path. And that path might even feel really good. It might feel really right, really righteous, full of justice. And you might have all the facts on your side. But what he's really after is getting you to trade away your primary calling as an ambassador for the kingdom. It's your primary calling. An ambassador for the kingdom planted in the world for the sake of the lost. Just get that phrase in your head. Your calling 
It says, an ambassador for the kingdom, planted in the world for the sake of the lost. Instead, he wants you to trade that away to engage in battle against flesh and blood, to win the battle at work, to win the battle of your marriage, the culture wars. Pick your enemy, me versus them. This never-ending grasping for power. And Jesus tells us, it is not so with you. He said the world does it that way. The world is always grasping for power. They're always grasping for control. It is not so with you. With us, it is not about winning. It is about serving. It is about serving. And as long as we remain more addicted to winning the argument than loving like Jesus, or as long as we remain more addicted to getting our own way than humbling ourselves in unity, as long as we remain more addicted to even defending the cross rather than bearing the cross. The Lord weeps. He looks at us and weeps. And we represent him poorly. Is, is the statement you're making representative of the Prince of Peace? Or is it just another power play that Caesar himself would go, well done. That's right out of my bag of tricks. Are we representing the prince of peace or Pilate? This is a tale of two kings. You can choose to follow either one, right? And one path looks like comfort. It looks like strength. Everybody likes comfort and strength, right? We like control. We like knowing what's coming tomorrow. That's nice. Power, it looks like access to important people. But, and we got to admit, you know, the, the, uh, at the end of the other path, the one strewn with palm branches, lies a cross. That doesn't always look like a super exciting path to take. But only one path leads to ultimate life. One path leads to life. And it's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of peace. It's the way of humility. Peace, you know, to, for Jesus, when we look at Jesus and we look at the words of the apostles, peace is not a means to victory. It is a way of living, even if it doesn't lead to victory, right? Peace is not a means to victory. Like I said, Jesus has not just given us great new weapons to beat our enemies. He's called us to die for our enemies, We're following in the footsteps, either of Pilate or of Christ. Christ and him crucified, as Paul said. Amen. Well, now it's our turn, okay? It's our turn. It's our turn to participate in this, to participate and respond to what we've just heard, to respond to what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.